Genesis chapter 34 is where we're going. Uh, We've been making our way through the Jacob story. The story started in Genesis 25, and it makes its way the whole way through chapter 34 and even through chapter 35. So we're nearing the end of the story. Jacob has already left his homeland. He traveled to a foreign country where he found uh, several wives and many children. He then returned to the land. Uh, he had a, uh, a time of wrestling uh, with an unknown figure. He was halting on a bad hip because of that. And uh, the very next day, he saw his brother Esau. He not only saw Esau in this confrontation, he was approached by 400 men that Esau brought with him. The last time I preached from Genesis, I preached to a video camera and tried to articulate this return of Jacob and Esau. And in uh, some ways, I really wish that that sermon could have been, been in person. So we could have celebrated together. I'm sure you were celebrating at home, but we could celebrate together how God overcame 20 years of animosity in that relationship and broke through for Jacob so that Esau forgave him. Esau ran and hugged him and embraced him. Wish we could have celebrated one of Jacob's brightest days. But in God's sovereign plan... He has us here together today. And after that bright moment, things turn really bad in Genesis 34. As we look at this text together, we pick up this story as Jacob continues back to the promised land, but doesn't go the whole way back to Bethel. That sets Jacob up for a colossal failure in Genesis 34 when he lets down his only named daughter, Dinah. Now this story has six scenes, and I think it's important for us to pay close attention as we work through it so we can learn as believers in Jesus Christ how to treat others. And so I want to work through each one of these six scenes with you. The first scene I've entitled Stopping Short. That's for those of you who like to take notes. Uh, Stopping Short. And it's found actually at the end of chapter 33... It's in verses 18 through 20. So look there in your Bible at uh, Genesis 33, 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar... And he called it El, which is the name God, God, the God of Israel, El Elohi Israel. When Jacob built an altar years before in Bethel, he made a promise to God that he would return and worship God at that special place in Bethel. In our passage, however, he is not in Bethel, but he's far away in a city named Shechem. And This is not a temporary pause for him. For as we're reading through these verses, we learn a few things. He he buys land there. 
in this place. He not only buys land, he builds an altar for worship to the God of Israel. And if you do all of the math between the different narratives in the book of Genesis, it appears that he and his family might spend about 10 years in this location. Spends quite a bit of time there. We don't know much about these years. What we do know is how they tragically come to an end in the events of Genesis 34, which I believe are a consequence of Jacob's refusal to return the whole way back to Bethel as he had promised. After these events, though, in Genesis 34, Jacob will not feel comfortable anymore in Shechem. And he'll leave and he'll go back to Bethel. So let's move along to the next scene in this narrative. Scene number two, the beginning of Genesis 34, is a shocking scene that describes what happens to Jacob's daughter, Dinah. I call this scene sinful abuse. Look at verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. This text describes a disgraceful act. Shechem is the prince of a land named Shechem. This land may have been named by Shechem's father Hamor, the king And it could have been named in his honor. But Shechem is a terrible Hivite prince. This man knew no restraint. So the text makes it quite clear what he does here. He saw Dinah. He seized her. Could be translated grabbed her. He lay with her and he shamed her. These terms, in my opinion, make it quite clear. That he sinfully abused her. And then, and only then, he tried to speak tenderly to her. Do you see this? Only after his acts of brutality does Shechem begin to treat Dinah as a person. The scriptures clearly condemn these horrid acts. They will do so in this text and in other texts like it. Men must never treat women as property or objects for their own desires. For every human being is made in God's image. And so we must never violate, bully, control, or manipulate another person just to feed our own desires. We need to remember what God says about true justice. In Romans chapter 12, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If you're here today and you have been the subject of something like this, might I encourage you with the text of scripture? I would invite you to turn over to Psalm 10 for a moment. Psalm 10. And I'll turn there with you. This morning as I was considering this, I was thinking about the plight of the psalmist in Psalm 10 who had experienced great difficulty, oppression, 
injustice. And he expresses that to the Lord in Psalm 10. And by the end of the psalm, he strengthens himself and encourages himself in the character and promises of God. Look at Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now notice how the psalmist steadies himself. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Here I encourage you with this psalm, a psalm I go to often when I need encouragement about what God is doing. This psalm reminds me that God sees, he takes note, notes, he acts, and he does execute righteous judgment upon this world and will one day soon when the Son of Man returns. I invite you to turn back to Genesis chapter 34 now for a moment. Genesis 34, we're going through the second scene. And near the end of this passage in in Genesis 34 verses 1 through 4, near the end of this scene, we learn that Shechem's desire for Dinah leads this, uh, just call him now, I had all kinds of names, but Uh, leads this brat prince to demand that his father get her to be his wife. That leads to the next scene when Jacob and his sons become aware of what's going on. It's found in verses 5 through 7. And so scene 3, let's notice their initial reactions. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. 
And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. In these three verses, you have the initial responses of Jacob and his sons. We start with Jacob. Jacob's initial response is telling. The text basically demonstrates here that he does nothing. He holds his peace. Now, some might try to justify his his reaction here as wisdom or patience, but we must keep in mind that his daughter has just been sexually violated. He should be outraged, but nothing. At this point, the reader wonders if this man is capable of caring for anyone but himself. This is his daughter. He should take a stand for her against this king and prince, especially when we find out later that his daughter is actually back at the home of Hamar and Shechem at this point. He should take a stand. Later, Jacob will show a passionate attachment to his favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. He will threaten people. He will try to defend them. He will will do whatever he can to help them. I just wonder how he could be so indifferent toward his daughter who's been violated. But then you read about Jacob's sons. They do not share the same reserve. And we're going to see that in the text. The text here tells us that his uh, Dinah's brothers and half-brothers were indignant and very angry. That's the initial reaction we might expect. They're beside themselves with anger because they say this is an outrageous thing. This act is so bad, in my opinion... That Moses injects into the story his narrator's comments. That's how I take the very last part of verse 7. I think Moses is giving a statement. Now this could come from Jacob's sons. They might say for such a thing must not be done. But it's my opinion that that is an exclamation from Moses as he teaches his original audience, the people of Israel, with this book. This sort of thing must Never be done. If this is a narrator's comment, Moses, the biblical author, if this is his comment into the story, then this is a point of emphasis. Anytime you see that in a story, when the author tells you what he's thinking, it emphasizes something very important in the text. This is a preposterous thing, and Jacob's sons are angry. These initial reactions set us up for the longest part of the story where the main male actors in the story all give a speech, everyone except spineless Jacob. He doesn't say anything here. But everyone else will give the speech. There are four speeches that form kind of uh, what I would call this scene would be a sham negotiation. There's a sham negotiation. There are four speeches. So uh, if you're trying to follow along at this point in your Bible from verses 8 through 24... If you just look for quotation marks in your translation and you underline the quotation marks, you would see four clearly defined speeches in this section where everyone gathered together says something. I want to point these out to you. First of all, we'll look at Hamar's speech. Hamar's speech. He's the king of Shechem. His speech is in verses 8 through 10. Look look down at verse 8. But Hamar spoke with him saying, 
The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give, give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade and get property in it. That's the end of his speech. Here, Hamer's depravity as a pagan king reveals itself in this passage. He demonstrates no remorse. He offers no apology. And he appeals to the economic opportunity that this might provide for Jacob and his family. He finds nothing offensive about the rape And he puts emphasis on how much his son is now presently longing for Dinah to be his wife. Now, on on another appalling note, as we work through this text, I, I have to point out, it seems that he views women as nothing more than bargaining chips between the two peoples. It's disgusting. Fortunately, some cultures function like this in ancient times. I want you to remember one thing about that, though, in this text. This is what the pagan king is saying. The Bible, even in these times, never condoned this sort of thinking about women or daughters. Later on, Jacob's sons will seem to go along with it, but it's all part of a deceitful plot to get them. So the Bible never condones that sort of thinking about women. Hamar is another wicked man in this text. Now, the next speech comes from Shechem himself in verses 11 and 12. It's a short speech. Look at verse 11. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give. Whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. That's his whole speech here. As far as I can see, the only contribution it makes is he expresses his willingness to pay whatever price it would take so that Dinah would become his wife. I mean, can you imagine this? I've studied this text, you know, for the last few weeks. I'm, I'm thinking of it as a dad. Could you imagine this? I mean, we just read these narratives, we don't think about it. He offers no remorse, no confession, no apology, no acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Can you imagine how Jacob must have felt? His daughter has just been violated, and he's looking in the eyes, the one who did this. To me, it's morally appalling that Jacob does nothing. For the rest of the story. He should step up. And demand justice. Instead. His sons take charge. And they demand vengeance. Notice their reply. Which comes in these sham negotiations. In verses 13 through 18. The son's speech. Look at verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem. And his father Hamor deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters to ourselves, and 
We will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's sons Shechem. Here we're told right at the beginning of this speech, the son's answer is deceitful. They have no intention of allowing this man to marry their daughter or their sister. Now their plan revolves around a covenant symbol that God had given to them in Abraham and in the Abrahamic covenant, the symbol of circumcision. And so they say that marriage is impossible with this foreign group, the Hivites, unless all the adult male population of the Hivites be circumcised. And somehow, their words, the text says, were pleasing to Hamor and his sons. And so that leaves us with just one last negotiation or speech in the passage where this king and prince go back to the land of Shechem. They gather all the males together, and they are going to talk them through this requirement. So look in your Bible at verse 19. And the young man did not delay to to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let, us, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to do this with us to become one people. Here's the condition. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them that they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the city. Well, you might think that this would be a difficult sale for the king and the the prince. Right? With the land. But we're told right at the beginning of this part of this story in verse 19... That Shechem was the most honored of all the people in his father's house. That's how there's some success here. Perhaps he's the oldest child, maybe the future heir of the kingdom. The king and the prince here speak once again. You kind of get up a window into a little bit of what they're thinking, their their deception themselves. Uh, They speak once again of the economic opportunity this will be for the people in the land of Shechem. We're going to go get all their stuff. Take it with us. We'll get their daughters. And that's when the story takes a brutal turn in verses 25 through 29 in the fifth scene. So there are six scenes. This is the fifth one. And this one I would entitle Brutal Execution. Look in your Bible at verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city when, while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took all their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. I tell you, reading this story is just about as depressing as reading Romans 3 that we just looked at earlier. You see the utter depravity and wickedness of hearts. Here in an opportune moment, because of the intense pain from the operations, two of Jacob's sons ravaged the city. 
One scholar, Bruce Walkey, described it this way. He says, the brothers responded with unmitigated violence and shameless barbarity. They avenge the defilement of their sister, acquiring their compensation in blood. The text says that Levi and Simeon take the life of every male in the city by the sharp edge of their sword. The rest of the brothers then operate, I think, according to the conventions of war. They pillage the city. They take all the livestock and wealth, and they capture the wives and children of the land. I told you this is a very challenging text to work through. Now, there are conflicting views among scholars about how to handle this execution. Were Simon and Levi correct to avenge their sister in this way? Were they correct? Well, something needed to be done. They could not stand by while she was held captive in Shechem's home. Unfortunately, however, later on we learn in Genesis that they were not just wrong in their deception. They're also wrong in their anger. At the end of Jacob's life, in Genesis 49, he pronounces a curse on these two. I want you to turn there in your Bible just so you can see it. Genesis 49. You remember near the end of Jacob's life, he's going around to his children. He's pronouncing blessing on his children. And he stops in the middle of these blessings and he he issues a curse. We've seen this in different ways before where one son is blessed, another is cursed. Here two sons will be cursed. Look at Genesis 49 and verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. This is Jacob speaking. Kind of like near the end of his life. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger. For it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. As a result of this curse, the the people of the tribe of Levi, they don't have any land. They don't get any land among the 12 tribes of Israel. The same is true of Simeon. Scattered. It's obvious as well as you're there, if you look later in verse 28, the end of all these blessings and curses, is all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father Jacob said to them as he blessed them. And, and notice this last phrase, blessing each with the blessing that was suitable to him. The curse that Jacob pronounced on Levi and Simeon was suitable to them. That's what God says in the word. So it seems that they were just, Levi and Simeon, in their determination to rescue Dinah and for their desire for justice, but executing all the men of the land and enslaving the women and children was a product of their anger and wrath. Unfortunately, the end result of their anger causes children and wives to suffer unjustly as well. 
I want to go back to Genesis 34 so we can close the chapter. There's just one last scene, and it's only two verses. We're almost done. The last scene I entitled Final Words. And sadly, the dysfunctionality and selfishness of this family continue with Jacob's words to his boys. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob's been completely off stage in this narrative, doing nothing until it's all finished. And Jacob here does not condemn the boys because they're deceptive. Rather, Jacob fears what their actions might mean for who? You fill in the blank. I know you want to. For who? For him. For him. You notice he's going through the text how many times he refers to himself. And only later, once at the very end, does he talk about his family. Jacob's pathetic rebuke, I think, shows his self-absorption and his cowardly fear. Oh, that people would think improperly of Jacob. They should. I mean, to me, the only thing that really, well, the the, the thing that stinks the, the most in this passage is Jacob's failure as a man to nurture, protect, and care for his family. Even in the end here, showing concern for himself. That's when Levi and Simeon ask whether they should just be okay with someone treating their sister like a prostitute. Their rebuke undoubtedly stings Jacob, and with it, the story ends. It concludes right there. As I reading and studying through Genesis 34, I couldn't help but think, you know, what do we do with this passage? What, how do we handle it? This story shows the depravity of Jacob's family. All of the men in this story act in shameful ways. Shechem's act must never be done. The Bible clearly condemns it. The brothers are deceptive and kill others in anger. Jacob is passive, self-centered, cowardly, and he fails to lead, care for, and defend his family. If anything good can happen in and with this family, we know the answer will be, it will be because of God's grace. God's grace, God's unmerited blessing upon these depraved men. Now, if our church will treat each other with love and respect, it too will only be by God's grace through the Spirit enabling us as we follow Scripture. We want to grow in this area and learn how to better care for each other. Currently, one of the studies we offer on Wednesday night is an equipped class entitled A Biblical Theology of Abuse. This class is taught by Dr. DePriest. He spent quite a bit of time in Scripture studying this. And we encourage you to sign up for the class or to take it the next time we offer it. We need to know, men and women, what the Scriptures say so that we can recognize this. It's warning signs. 
and different manifestations. And we not only want to identify it, we pray by God's grace we'll be able to prevent it. For we must all treat others as image bearers of God. And there's a lot for us to learn in the scriptures about that. In a moment, we're going to partake in the Lord's table, which visually reminds us that we are all sinners and that our sin demands a payment. If God could use Jacob and his sons, he can use us as well with all of our sin. May we approach the Lord's table this morning humbly, marveling that God can use us Sinners saved and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Read Genesis 34. I see so much human depravity. And so my heart quickly and graciously runs now to the gospel. I don't know about you, but seeing the sinfulness of humanity and the potential for sinfulness in all of our hearts, I want to run to the place where I know there's forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I invite you now to close your heads and or bow your heads and close your eyes as we turn to the Lord's table. This time I invite the musicians to the front so they can prepare to minister to us as we partake in the Lord's table together. As they come, might I encourage you to take a quiet moment now to consider the condition of your own heart. We've seen a lot of sin in this passage, but perhaps in your own life there are ways that you sinned against God today or this weekend or this week. Ask God to reveal those areas to you and confess them now as we prepare to take the Lord's table.